Meanwhile, on the Godbeat. Hey, Godbeat listeners. I'm Catherine Woodowis, deputy web editor here at Sojourners. Today, we wanted to talk about something journalists usually don't like talking about, and that's when doing our job becomes too much. Journalism has always been inherently risky, but in the last few years in the U.S., something feels different. Suspicion over our work and even the concept of news is rising. Being on Twitter leaves many journalists exposed to abuse or hate speech daily. Not only that, most of us are now exposed to tragic stories and traumatic images, which has an effect. Don't just take it from us. Recent studies from UCLA and the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine show that prolonged exposure to violent content correlates to journalists' likelihood of having anxiety, depression, PTSD, and or alcoholism. It's not all bleak, of course. Most of us are in this work because we love it and see its value to the world. But given these realities, how are we holding up? And what do we do next? I called a couple of colleagues in journalism to help me think about these questions. I sat down with Amy Sullivan, former senior editor for Yahoo and Time, who recently quit her job in order to ask these very questions. A bit later on, we'll hear from Dawn Arujo-Hawkins, staff writer for Global Sisters Report, who says the current news climate is shaping how she approaches the idea of truth and objectivity. We'll also hear from Aisha Khan, a social media editor for Religion News Service, about curating news for the world's religions and managing the online anger and harassment that frequently ensues. So first, here's Amy Sullivan, who has been in journalism for more than 15 years and recently left a string of top editing jobs. Here's what she says about why she stepped away for now and why she thinks journalists and journalism are at risk. There is no question um, that things are different now and they are much worse than at any time that I can remember. It started in the campaign when, for the first time, journalists were not just kept behind a line, because that can be somewhat standard when you have large campaign gatherings, um, but were penned in in the middle of a room so that they were surrounded on all four sides by often very hostile Trump supporters um, who would yell things at them and um, who could make them feel unsafe. At the beginning, um, during the primary season, we would kind of joke with some of our uh, reporters who had to go there that, you know, maybe they deserved hazard pay um, for having to be there. Um, but as the months wore on and occasionally, you know, I'd be up late um, waiting for a piece to come in um, after midnight so I could edit it. And I'd get an email from a reporter saying, you know, I'm sorry, it's not in yet. Um, I have to wait um, for them to clear the arena before it's safe for us to get out. Um, it was not a joke anymore. Um, and I really it did start to worry both about the physical safety, but absolutely about the mental pressure of just having to withgo that to do your job. One other thing that's been incredibly disturbing and that has... Um, uh, tracked completely with the 2016 presidential campaign and beyond is the rise of anti-Semitism. Uh, we have a good friend um, who wrote something that was disliked by uh, some Trump supporters and who found herself fielding phone calls um, from funeral homes about um, the caskets that her family was going to need to pick out for her. I mean, that is beyond the pale. I don't care who you are and where you fall on the political spectrum. Nobody should have to put up with that for doing their job. 
We talk some about disturbing images and traumatic imagery, um, having to sort through that as a journalist. How much has that affected your work um, and, and the way that you think about the work of the journalist? So this is kind of an ongoing issue that journalists have to wrestle with. For those of us whose jobs require us to stay on Twitter, who can't really log off, um, it becomes an issue when you have something um, like the Newtown massacre um, or the bodies. There was that one iconic picture of the toddler washed up um, that I still have not looked at with focused eyes because I can't. I just cannot. Um, I have a three-year-old now and I can't. Um, it's not a matter of pretending it's not happening. And that's one of the things that I think often um, gets raised as a straw man in the debates about whether or not to show these photos. I think we absolutely have to confront the fact um, that horrific things happen. That doesn't mean that we need to damage ourselves in doing so. Oh, God. Yeah. It's really hard with young kids. And not wanting to picture my daughter in a first grade classroom is not the same as not caring about uh, gun violence. I think for a lot of us, there's a very um, easy answer of wanting to just maintain our humanity. Um, so for instance, and uh, it is a sign of how absurd our world is with social media these days that this is even a question, but I draw the line at beheadings. I cannot mm -hmm. watch a beheading. Mm -hmm. um, I can't watch a death in general. Mm -hmm. um, that should be pretty basic <laughs> for mm -hmm. most of us. Mm -hmm. um, we should know what happens. But that doesn't mean we need to watch. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, there were some ISIS beheadings that were circling. and yeah, One after one after one. Yeah. And I remember coming. I didn't watch any of them um, for a lot of the same reasons you just articulated. And I remember coming home and one of my housemates who was not in journalism had found them and watched them. And I said, why did you do that? And she said, I just thought, I thought it was what we were supposed to do. It was a very strange moment for me thinking, is this something that I should have been doing as a journalist and a citizen? Or is it really okay that I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to touch that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the question of mentorship for me comes up, where these guidelines are and who is kind of setting this as, a, as an example. Yeah, it's another reason why we need conversations as a profession mm -hmm. about these questions of what you look at, um, what's your obligation as a citizen, as a journalist, and what is not. I think it's important to acknowledge and uh, be very mindful of the fact that throughout history, pretending that things are better and safer than they are has often been in uh, somebody's political interest and power interest. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to take just one example, um, the shooting of unarmed people of color. Um, we know that that has happened um, even without videos. Uh, there is much more attention and organizing and um, resistance around it because we have videos now. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that's 
incredibly important for us to know and to have. But that means that we need to be constantly um, discussing these questions of, well, then how many of us need to see it in order for it to matter? Mm -hmm. um, what kinds of videos do we need to look at in order for it to matter? These are all open questions. I don't necessarily have the answers to a lot of them, um, but we need to be able to talk about them. So you've recently left a string of top editing jobs. How much did the accumulation of things like the election or international tragedies in the last couple of years that have reverberated around <laughs> social media, did that influence your thinking? It all had been building up mm -hmm. um, in a cumulative effect for me. Um, over the last year, I would say with Black Lives Matter, um, with some of the gun access debates and gun control debates, um, and certainly with the presidential election, uh, some uh, more pointed commentary had been seeping into, um, say, what I wrote on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And um, more and more often, uh, the good folks I had been working with um, would kind of flag me and say, you know, you got to tone it down on mm -hmm. Twitter. Uh, you need to be really careful what you say. Um, mm -hmm. Or even maybe you need to stay off Twitter um, for wow. a while. And um, I completely understand from um, their point of view. And um, I, I agree <laughs> that if people are going to work with a straight news organization and um, be primarily responsible for editing and writing straight news, um, then they need to be very careful about expressing their opinions. Um, but that, I guess, was just a piece of the wake up call for me that this was not a great fit, that I had somehow ended up down this road where I was um, needing to hide um, a really important piece of who I am, but also a really valuable piece of um, what I can bring to the table as a professional. Mm -hmm. You mentioned we were speaking earlier uh, that when you left your job earlier this year, you heard something new and that was jealousy from other um, from other colleagues in the field saying, oh, man, I, w I wish I could leave. Um, what was that about, do you think? So there was something else that was new um, that came out after the election that I have not seen before in journalism. And that was kind of a broad grappling with the very meaning of what it means to be a journalist and what our jobs are as a vocation. After the election, not just because of who won, but because of how the campaign was waged and the responses of a lot of Americans to the idea that there are facts that can be knowable um, and there is a truth and that it should matter if somebody blatantly lies to you over and over and over again. I and a lot of my friends and colleagues have had to question um, the good of what we do. Um, does it matter if you spend your days working seven days a week around the clock um, to dig up facts and to get people on the record if readers and listeners and viewers just dismiss them and say, nah, that's just bias. There's no such thing as your facts. That's fake news. Mm -hmm. um, 
I was already kind of on my way out. Um, so for me, um, I was grappling with what I needed to do next. Um, but a lot of my colleagues um, who really believe strongly in the values of um, journalism have been figuring out um, whether what they do matters anymore. Um, and if not, <laughs> what it's all been for, um, why they've been putting in the years and the decades and what they should do about it. And so when I um, left my job at Yahoo and um, was talking to people about it, I heard from colleague after colleague um, who are people who I have seen as the most, you know, Walter Cronkite upstanding <laughs> straight news people would tell me, I think about this all the time. I wish I could do what you're doing uh, mm. every day. I mm. think uh, maybe I should be leaving. Maybe I, there's something else I should be doing. A really um, a fundamental first principles questioning of um, whether journalism matters. And that is new and that shakes me to my core and mm. a lot of journalists to their core. I also talked with Donna Rujo Hawkins, a religion reporter and staff writer at Global Sisters Report, who says she had a specific moment of realizing the way she does her job has to change. Well, it was a it was a protest somewhere down to I believe in Louisiana, um, and it was a Black Lives Matter protest, and there had been a clash between the protesters and the police. And at one point, a protester was struck by a car. And the protesters were saying the police, like, intentionally ran this man down. And the police were saying, no, he fell in front of this car. And that, for me, was just, like, this moment of, you know, we're, we're taught as journalists to put an, emphasis, put an emphasis on official reports like police reports when you talk about a crime. And in that instant, I was like, if you just report the police version of this story, that's not objectivity and you know that's what we're taught as journalists not putting your opinion into it but like what was what was recorded what was written down by the police and in this instance mm. like that's not objectivity that is taking a side and you know that's probably always been true but it just hit me like in my gut when I read this and I was like wow like so objectivity and truth are not the same thing always um and yeah. so I just had this, you know, just this feeling that the way that we go about journalism in this day and age, you have to do more than, I guess, rely on the authorities because the authorities are not, their their objectivity is not always the truth. What's changed about how you tell stories or look for stories since that moment? Well, as a, as a woman of color, it's always been important for me to seek out minority voices and so I'm very conscious of who who I'm getting at sources, who's speaking, whose voices are being amplified. I mean, it doesn't really change how I've I've done it because I've always been looking for those uh, marginalized voices. But I think it is of much greater importance now that we don't have one group of people effectively determining what is news and how we think about it. I I feel, you know, ready, ready when I publish something in a way that I didn't have to feel ready before. Hmm. 
What goes into that that's different now? Um, I think thinking about the words that I use. So mm. I have found it my personal mandate in this political climate to be to go out of my way to talk about racism and to call racism racism or to call sexism sexism. And so when I'm writing, I, I'm more conscious of using those words and lining out like why this thing that happened was racist or why this thing that happened was sexist and knowing that those are going to trigger some responses from people who, who disagree and just mentally being ready. Like, I, like, no, that's what it is. Racism is racism and that's a hill I'm willing to die on as a journalist. You're raising questions around objectivity being um, an accurate term for the kind of journalism that's needed. The, the question of justice and truth are not incompatible with objectivity, but are not quite the same thing. Who do you see doing that well? You know, I think Muslim, female Muslim journalists in particular do this very well. And I think they've been in many ways, forced into that position. Most of the people I've been following recently have been these female Muslim journalists because I think they provide a nuance to, I'm going to use a term that I'm going, I already hate myself for using, but what we see in the mainstream media, that's largely because you don't have a lot of those voices shaping the news. See how a story that's published there is then parsed out by um, an individual journalist who is, I guess, more familiar, more personally impacted by that story, who is like living the world of Islam and not just reporting on it, it 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 really opens your eyes to how things are reported objectively and what is the truth. So mm -hmm. if you're not following Muslim female journalists on Twitter, you should do that. Up next, we'll hear from Aisha Khan, social media editor for Religion News Service. I chatted with Aisha about how she manages engaging with opinionated audiences around the topic of religion and what it's like being a Muslim woman on Twitter in a time of online toxicity. You've been a reporter and writer for a while, but you recently also became a social media editor. Do you find that that's changed how you relate to online news? So... When I first started um, with RNS, I had been posting a lot of, you know, tweets and whatnot, news stories that were coming up, and I was posting them on RNS's social media feed. And um, my colleague, Emily Miller, who had been handing off the social media position to me, uh, she messaged me and she said, you know, I noticed that, you know, at 12 p.m., you had two or three tweets that just popped up at once. So just be careful of that. Um, and I was like, oh, that's weird. I only saw one scheduled there. Let me see what's up. And I kept having this issue. And do I was Googling furiously, like, what's going on with my tweet deck? It's broken. Um, and then I realized that I had muted the word Trump previously. Um, even I think right before he had even been uh, nominated because I just couldn't deal with it. And I, I thought, you know, for my own mental health, let me do this for myself. And I had been enjoying that so much, I hadn't even noticed everything I was missing for for months and months and months. Uh, what was it like to unmute that? My tweets were coming a lot faster. <laughs> yeah. So, it, yeah, it was just a lot of just a lot of stuff happening after that. I don't know if RNS gets uh, a lot of 
uh, unsavory mentions at their Twitter handle. Sojourner certainly does. Um, and you kind of have to you have to read it. You know, how do you approach that? I found that I've kind of become used to it, but every now and then there's something that really kind of shocks me. Um, often just tr- the trolls that come at you with no particular anchor point, you know, they're, they're not coming at you for a specific story or something. Um, that's often the worst. Um, the other thing is that I have to kind of brace myself for is anytime we write about... Um, terrorism and Islam, anytime there's that kind of headline, um, there's, I can pretty much be guaranteed to see something about, uh, Islam, a death cult, a death cult, something like that. You know what I mean? Something about, you know, the prophet Muhammad was a pedophile or this and that, or, um, and the same thing, anytime we have, uh, a post about the Pope, you know, he rapes little boys or he's a pedophile or this and that, like really just, you know, he's a devil worshiper. Um, these kind of things. Usually when we get hate comments about any other group, it's, you know, just very, you know, just like a really violent, angry tweet that looks like somebody just kind of like smashed their hand against a keyboard. In the particular case of Mormons, I think we have several, um, several readers or at least followers who will comment things like, oh, um, this was a good story, except did you know that Mormons are this and this and this, like, this kind of cult? Which means which means that you kind of have to read that entire comment. It Sometimes it means that I actually have to read every single comment to make sure that there's not something that's extremely hateful being posted on our page that can be traumatic to one of our readers. After a day of, you know, coming through this, how do you detox from from looking through all this stuff? I think it's hard um, in the kind of Slack and Twitter age of the news media today to kind of take that step back. I mean, honestly, what I kind of find to be the best thing is um, to get away from your phone and from your computer for a little bit and um, spend time in communities that are a lot more uplifting than your Twitter mentions. And for me, that happens to be my mosque. Like this, this month it's Ramadan, so I'm find myself whenever I, you know, go to the mosque for iftar on the weekends or on the evenings. I find it. I have a new appreciation for the kind of peace that I get there, and not like literal quiet because you know it's often very noisy and people, um, kids running around and whatnot. But um, the kind of mental quiet where you just focus on your prayer and your family and your friends. And um, you don't really have to deal with hate speech. <laughs> and then the other thing um, is the kind of just the feeling of giving back. That um, um, spending time with organizations or um, volunteer groups or donating money to causes that are really important to you. In my day job, I can't, I don't really want to be making so many partisan comments even on my personal account, but I can at least speak with my money and my time outside of my nine to five. Um, I would love to be able to step away from reading, you know, the C word or, you know, death to all Muslims or something like that every day, but can't really do that um, in my job. So you are Muslim. 
As a journalist, do you find that your religious identity shapes how you interact with your audience or um, people online and then vice versa? Uh, do you find that that religious affiliation changes how people interact with you? I definitely yes to the latter that um, people, for sure, if I write a story about um, another another faith group, for example, let's say I write a story about Catholics, anyone who happens to see my byline or see, you know, in my little author photo or something, oh, she's wearing a hijab, her name, her last name's Khan, something like that. Um, it's immediately kind of like, oh, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Or um, if I happen to write something about Islam, then people will be like, oh, well, she's an apologist for for Muslims who do X, Y, and Z, um, which neither of which are necessarily true. But just the fact that I have that Muslim identity as a visibly Muslim woman, all my other stories that I've written and um, that kind of carries that weight um, that, oh, she's this sort of person and she has this sort of opinions. So we're going to draw this sort of conclusion from her story. Do you find that that's changed uh noticeably um in the last year or two with all of the rhetoric the the really islamophobic rhetoric um around trump's campaign and now um just more broadly in in society in the last couple of years i think to make kind of a parallel with the offline world um if we look at what happened in portland just a few weeks back um the stabbing of um people who stood up for uh, a few Muslim girls who were um, being attacked. The way that people viewed that attack was kind of like, oh, look at Trump and what he's done that he's caused this kind of this horrible incident to happen against Muslims and against um, their allies. But Portland has got a lot of issues with um, racism and Islamophobia happening long before Trump was you know, even in our day-to-day -day vocabulary. We kind of can see the same thing happening online. Yes, Trump has made it worse in some ways. Um, they were doing this all along, you know what I mean? And um, what has changed is that technology has changed. Um, and like I said, that they've been brought together in this way um, with somebody who's kind of leading the helm in a way. Um, but for sure, they've always been there. It's just that maybe they haven't all been messaging me on Twitter before. This was Meanwhile on the Godbeat. This episode was produced by me, Catherine Woodowis, with music by Manos Mars. Thanks for listening. <laughs>